I would rather hear Lee Anglin read scripture than just about anybody. You remember those Bible on tape where the guy sounded like Morgan Freeman? I think Lee tops that. So read this text. It's the text that we'll launch from tonight. When we say, therefore, there was something that preceded that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, he's been talking about ministry. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shame, shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's love word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in the, our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is part of the word of God. The glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, kids, Higgs, you guys going out tonight, junior hires, you can head out with Higgins, and if there are any fourth, fifth graders, you guys, a lot of them are already out, but you can go too. Frederick Meekner wrote this about Jesus. He had a face. Whoever he was or was not, whoever he thought he was, whoever he has become in our memory since, and whoever he will go on becoming for as long as we remember him. Exalted, sentimentalized, debunked, made and remade to the measure of each generation's desire, dread, indifference. The fact is he was a man once. Whatever else he may have been, he was a man. And he had a man's face, a human face. Eke homo, Pilate said, behold the man. Yet we tend to shrink back from trying and try instead to behold Shakespeare's face or Helen of Troy's because with them the chances are we could survive almost anything. Shakespeare's say or a cast in Helen's eye. But with Jesus the risk is too great, the risk that his face would be too much for us if not enough, either a face like any other face to see, pass by, forget, or a face so unlike any other that we would have no choice but to remember it always and to either follow or flee it to the end of our days and beyond. Like you and me, Jesus had a face his life gave shape to, and that shaped his life and the lives of others. And with part of ourselves, I think we might turn away from the mystery of that face, that life, 
as much of the time we turn away from the mystery of life itself. With part of ourselves, I think we might avoid meeting his eyes if such a meeting were possible. The way at certain moments we avoid meeting our own eyes in mirrors because for better or worse, they threaten to tell us more than we want to know. This is with part of ourselves, but there is another part. It is the dreaming part, the part that runs to meet in dreams truths that in the world itself we run from. The Apostle Paul writes, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And to at least one part of that, even unbelief can say amen. That it would take no less than God if there were a God to enable men to see God's glory in that shambles of a face. And for centuries, all sorts and kinds of people have seen it, bright ones and stupid ones, good ones and bad ones, young ones and old ones, until little by little they come to look like what they dream toward. Paul saw that too. He saw faith as transfiguration, as the faltering growth toward glory of even fools and rascals like himself. Take it or leave it, the face of Jesus is, if nothing else, at least a face we would know anywhere. A face that belongs to us somehow, our age, our culture, a face we somehow belong to. Like the faces of the people we love, it has become so familiar that unless we take pains, we hardly see it at all. Take pains. See it for what it is and to see it as whole. To see it for what it is possible that it will become. The face of Jesus as the face of our own secret and innermost destiny the face of Jesus as our face. I was, as many of you know, raised in a severe form of fear-based Christian fundamentalism. Um, I remember in my, I suppose it was my early 20s, when I began to tunnel my way out of that fundamentalism and that fear-based religion literarily. You've heard me say before, but it was a quite at the beginning of a journey when my United Methodist Lady. Remember, in the religion that I grew up in, the denomination I grew up in, when we, am I out or is that, so what do you want me to do, Wes? You want me, <laughs> let me move down here and see if we find a hot spot. So I've always said in our little world, when we studied um, Comparative world religions, we didn't study Hindus and Muslims, we studied Baptist and Church of Christ. That was comparative world religions for us. And so this United Methodist neighbor lady, of course, in our fundamentalism, we always said Methodists, they didn't believe fat meat's greasy. Um, you have to think about that a little bit. But that means they, do I need to break it down for you Tennesseans? They didn't believe fat meat is greasy. They didn't believe anything, in other words. Okay, now you got it, Carolyn. Makes so much sense for me. And she slipped me a piece of contraband. It was Max Licato's first book called On the Anvil. Of all the books Max Licato wrote, I still think the three richest were On the Anvil, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, and God Came Near, which was his first three right out of the chute. And I remember I kept that book under the bed because in our denomination, young ministers, Roy, were not supposed to read what was called external literature. Isn't that something? We couldn't read uh, literature written by somebody that wasn't in our denomination because the, the fear was that it would lead us astray. 
So I kept that book under my bed at my mom and dad's house. I was a young evangelist traveling all over, and I finally pulled it out. I think I'd had it for a year. I pulled it out, and I read it. And I remember the slow sense of relief that began to come to me as authors like Max Licato, Jim McGuigan, um, Charles Stanley, uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, and then Philip Yancey. Wonderful evangelical authors who talked about Jesus in such a way that it began to fanned down even off the harshest edges of my view of God. Specifically, these writers and others like them, uh, ultimately they led me to authors like Beekner and Nowen and others, but all of these authors employed Jesus in ways that began to heal me. I began to hear through their literature, through their writing, the words of God in the face of Jesus Christ, from the mouth of Jesus Christ, that we do not have to be afraid. Um, and they were so effective for me. Jesus was so effective for me in those days that through a rereading of the Jesus story and a listening to Jesus anew, my beliefs in God began to be reformed, even transformed. And a lot of you, most of you, remember those days of that first reformation as you began to move from harshness to grace. I would even begin at that time, tongue-in-cheek, to, to say something akin to, I would say, Jesus ultimately saved God for me. Uh, the picture of Jesus reformed my view of God and literally salvaged the idea of God for me. That salvaging of God by Jesus uh, covered essentially the decade of my 20s. And then at the end of that decade, uh, when I was 28, 29 years old, I was at Christ Church and uh, was a young preaching pastor there in that large mega church. And uh, horrifyingly for me, this Jesus who had saved God began himself to fall into a state of, if you will, disrepair. As my beliefs about Jesus, even the red letter stuff, because there's some pretty tough stuff in the red letters too. As I began to find the Jesus Seminar and those like um, Funk and others, John Dominic Crossan, um, Jesus began to enter a period of deconstruction for me and the one who had saved my idea of God now found himself in need of saving. And so through my 30s, Jesus himself fell into the bullseye of my intellectual uh, deconstruction. I want to turn to the words of one of my three or four most influential literary pastors, a guy who just passed away last year, um, because I can't say it better, and Marcus Borg, the great scholar Marcus Borg, in his wonderful, accessible book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, talks about his own journey of coming back to Jesus. But back to seminary and the years of graduate school that followed, even as I was becoming fascinated with the study of the Christian tradition and the quest for the historical Jesus, I remember in those days, preparing for ministry, my unbelief was actually deepening. 
The closet agnostic was becoming a closet atheist, though I never acknowledged that to anybody. The reasons are clear enough to me now. The central problem was still, forgive me, I'm still trying hard to not have to do this, but whew, those are big letters. The central problem was still the collision between God and the modern worldview. The problem I'd, and the image of reality I had acquired by growing up in the modern world, the latter had hardened into a taken for granted map of reality. Indeed, I didn't even think it, of it as a map, but simply as the way things are. The longer I studied the Christian tradition and the academic setting I was in, the more transparent its human origins became. Religions in general, including Christianity, it seemed to me, were manifestly, manifestly cultural products. I could see how their readily identifiable psychological functions served human needs and cultural ends. The notion that we made it all up was somewhat alarming, but also increasingly compelling. And so, though I found the study of the Bible and the Christian tradition to be immensely rich and rewarding, the bottom line was that in the end, I didn't know what to do with the notion of God. I didn't know what to do with Jesus. On the whole, I thought there was probably no such reality. This uncertainty about God affected the focus of my research on Jesus, and for about the first dozen years, I concentrated on what we can glimpse about Jesus' relationship to this world. I focused on his involvement with the social and political issues of his day, especially his challenge to the purity system of the first century Jewish social world. I argued he was an advocate of the politics of compassion in a social world dominated by the politics of purity. In short, I studied those parts of the tradition that made sense apart from the God question. But even as I did this, I remained aware that Jesus was more than a socio-political figure, although I didn't know what to make of what he said about God. And this is so my story. Then in my mid-30s, I had a number of experiences of what I now recognize as mysticism. In a sense, they were nothing spectacular, at least not compared with the experiences described by William James in his classic work, The Varieties of Religious Experience. But I had experiences that transcended the academic and the intellectual. These experiences were inexplicable and they fundamentally changed my understanding of God, Jesus, religion, and Christianity. The experiences were marked by what the Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel called radical amazement, moments of transformed perception in which the earth is seen as filled with the glory of God, shining with a radiant presence. These were moments of connectedness in which I felt my linkage, linkage to what is. They seem similar to the experiences that Rudolf Otto described as experiences of the numinous, the awe-inspiring and wonder-evoking holy, the mysterium tremendum, overwhelming mystery that elicits trembling even as it also attracts us in a compelling way. These experiences took me beyond books, concepts. They involved a rediscovery of mystery, not an intellectual paradox, but an experience of sacred mystery, God, if you will. These experiences, besides being ecstatic, were for me aha moments. They gave me a new understanding of the meaning of the word God. I realized that God did not refer simply to a supernatural being out there somewhere, which is where I had put God ever since my childhood musings about God up in heaven. Rather, I began to see the word God referring to the sacred, 
the underlying sacred that is at the center of existence, the holy mystery that's all around and within us. God is the non-material ground and source and presence in which to cite the words attributed to Paul by the author of Acts, in whom we live and move and have our being, finally. So I begin also to understand what it means to say that God is both everywhere present and up in heaven, imminent and transcendent. As traditional Christian theology puts it, God is indeed beyond us and yet deeper than even within us. God is not somewhere else but right here and everywhere. God is more than everything and yet everything is in God. Being a thinking type of person, I begin studying experiences of God in both mystical and non-mystical forms. I learned that even though these experiences I learned that even though these experiences are extraordinary, they are also quite common known across cultures throughout history and into the present time. Gradually, it became obvious to me that God, the sacred, the holy, the numinous, was real. God was no longer a concept or an article of belief, but God for me in the person of Jesus Christ had become an element of experience. This transformation of my understanding of God began to affect my understanding of Jesus. I was now able to see the centrality of God or the spirit to say the same thing in Jesus' own life. I began to see Jesus as one whose spirituality, his experiential awareness of spirit was foundational for his life. This perception became the vantage point for what I have since come to understand is the key truth about Jesus. Jesus is not simply to be believed in. If Jesus is indeed what Jesus said he was, Jesus is the living, risen presence of God that is accessible and to be experienced by all humankind. Wow. So, so it was with me over the past few years. I have come to see the Christian life not as just articles of faith or doctrines. As a child, believing for me was easy. But as exposure to a broader universe began to challenge my beliefs, leading me through continuous cycles of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Um, as I moved into this phase of intellectual question, painful events of doubt and disbelief, disenchantment, disenfranchisement, the questioning of religious authority, the question of not only religious institutions, but even that with which they spoke, the question of God, and specifically in the Christian faith, the person of Jesus Christ. For the first four and a half decades of my life, I assumed that the Christian life was about believing. And the problem for me was my beliefs were ever-changing. But these past three or four years have in many ways been the hardest of my life and yet in some gracious irony, they have been my best years. And these years, I have come to see the Christian life as being so much more than a set of propositional truths or what we call beliefs. The experiences and the intuitions and the encounters have begun to rise up in my life like blades of grass or tiny flowers that work their way through the hard concrete of intellectual rigor and painful doubt and a residual emotional damage from religious abuse.
I realize now in these last few years peacefully that God is and that God for me has shown the divine light in the face of a person named Jesus and that the core element of the Christian life and faith is not believing in things about God or the Bible or Jesus, but the Christian life is about entering into a life-giving and a sustaining relationship with what we variously refer to as God, the ground of all being, spirit, or the risen, for Christians, we call this presence of God the risen living Christ. And a Christian for me now is one who lives out their relationship with God, one who lives out their relationship with life, the universe, spirit, whatever you want to call it. A Christian is one who lives out this relationship with the mysterium tremendum in the framework of the Christian tradition. For me, Jesus Christ is not simply God's entry into human life, but Jesus Christ was this divine involvement in human history that had been hidden from the beginning of the world. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shone in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then the Word was made flesh. Jesus Christ was not this foray of God into human life. Jesus Christ was a picture of the divine involvement in human history that had been hidden from the beginning of time and now was made manifest in Jesus. That's why Paul said, when the grace of God finally appeared to us in Jesus Christ, not when the grace of God developed, but when it appeared, in Christ is revealed the way of God which is presence in incarnation, presence in human flesh. In Jesus Christ was revealed not where God had now come, but where God had always been in the first Adam and in the second Adam in human life. No wonder Jesus could get to the very end of time and say, this is what I'm going to say to you at judgment. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was naked and you clothed me. And even to the very end, the full mystery of God in flesh, Jesus said was not to be fully understood until those who had even done the works of Jesus looked at him curiously and said, when did we ever see you thirsty? To which Jesus would say, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you are doing it unto me. Jesus Christ is not simply the revelation of who God is. Jesus Christ is the revelation of who we are. Beloved children of God who do not become beloved children of God, but are inherently children of God from the very beginning of time. Jesus Christ shows us our chief struggle, that as baptized believers, the Spirit descends from heaven, the voice of God proclaims, you are my beloved child in whom I am pleased to dwell. And then life takes us from that baptism into the wilderness and immediately the Bible says, the voice of the tempter comes and says, if you are the beloved child of God, turn this stone into bread. 
In other words, if you are the beloved child of God, you are going to have to do something to prove it. You're going to have to justify this statement. You're going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat and perform. You're going to have to get the right zip code, drive the right car. You're going to have to get the right education. You're going to have to have the right amount of money. You're going to have to go to the right church. You're going to have to perform. And the Bible says there, Jesus resisted that temptation to not embrace fully his humanity and his place as a beloved child of God. Jesus resisted there the temptation of the adversary. And this is the human journey. In Jesus, we find out who we are. So before I open it to you, I just wanted to say these things. And the reason I say them so simply and have read a little bit is because as I was thinking about talking about Jesus, I stacked up about four stacks of books. And I was reading through them this week, and I kept in the midst of all of my reading about high Christology and Pauline theology and the creeds and Jesus descending into hell, I kept hearing the Apostle Paul say, who has removed you from the simplicity of Christ? Who has removed you from the simplicity, the beauty of God in flesh coming into this world, showing us and modeling that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves? And in this is all the commandment and the law and the preacher should do as Job, put his hand over his mouth and say, I have no more to say. I remember uh, reading the words of a fourth century monastic. He was the Abba of a particular monastery in uh, what is now northern Egypt. And he said late in life he had a young man come to him who was a new matriculant to the monastery. The young man came, and as was the case with many young men uh, entering into the monastery, they would come and they had the privilege of asking the old abba, the old father of the monastery, to ask him for a word. The young man the old man said, he came to me and he asked me for a word and I told him to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he went away and a year later he came back and said, I have fulfilled the first word. And the old man said, I had no response for him but tears. Because I knew that between the age of 23 and 24 and in one year's time, he could not possibly love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I cried and confused. He left and he came back the next year and said, I have kept the word which you gave me. For three years straight, I wept as he told me he had kept the word. Finally understanding, the young man realized that this call to love God, this esoteric call to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength was beyond him. And he came back to me and he stood before me and he said, Dear Father, I have tried to fulfill the first word, but it is beyond me. Is there a second word for me? To which he said, I kindly replied, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man went away and lived to be an old man and never came back for a third word. Who has removed you from the simplicity of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God shown? Not only the story of the God of heaven, but the glory of God shown, the glory of man created in that same image. I'll close with this, and then we'll do a little midrash together. My interlocutor is a student 
who under various names and in various transparent disguises has attended all the religion classes I have ever taught and listened to all my sermons and read every word I've ever written, published and unpublished, including diaries and letters. The young man's on the thin side, darker, brighter. He is smarter than I am and he knows it. He is without either guile or mercy. He says to me in front of the class, you know you were just getting down to the one thing people might be interested in, he says, because it's always interesting to hear why a man believes what he believes. We would like to know why you really believe in this man named Jesus. But then instead of giving it to them straight, you started paraphrasing from a work of your own fiction. I hear you do the same sort of thing in sermons. Just as you're about to reach what ought to be the real nub of the matter, you lapse off into something than the words of your early reviewer is either poetry or William's aqua velva. I would hesitate to use the phrase artful dodger if you hadn't already used it artfully yourself. Why don't you really just tell us what you think about Jesus? Give it to us straight. Give it all to us, God, Jesus, the ministry of all things. Give it to them straight, he said. Well, it's true, he cannot possibly want me to give it straight any more than I want to give it straight myself any more than I want to get it straight once and for all. For my own sake, I tell them this, and he brushes his hand over his mouth to conceal the glimmer of a smile. A question, he says then. Have you ever had what you would consider yourself a self-authenticating religious experience of this fellow named Jesus? I thought to myself, there are things I've already mentioned, the monastery visit, the great laughter sermon, the apple tree branches. They've all really happened, I tell him. And I don't see why, because I've used them in a novel, I shouldn't use them again here. The dream of writing the name on the bar, I really dreamed it. God knows I know what he means about artful dodging, though. But what can be straighter than telling the actual experiences themselves? What more can he want? I just told you, he says, what I want. A self-authenticating religious experience with Jesus. Well, not the least of my problems is that I can hardly even imagine what kind of an experience a genuine self-authenticating religious experience would be. Without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. My interlocutor looks at me and says, I don't think that God would find your case a particular challenge. You've already confessed to be one of those crazy people who has a taste for the supernatural. You want to believe in magic, ghosts, and flying saucers. If God were to perform just one small miracle, your doubts would fade away like morning dew. I thought to myself, God knows I've prayed for such miracles, both small and great. I confess it. I've prayed for people I knew who were dying of cancer who went right on with their dying so that if there were healing things that happened this side of the healing itself, they were things I could not be sure of except perhaps for the thing inside of myself that was healed a little just by praying the prayer. So I'm giving it to you straight now, my friend, with your chair rocked back and your hands behind your head. Once or twice, I thought a true healing happened, but I wasn't sure, and you're asking me for a time I was sure that Jesus came to me. I've prayed for some sign, a voice I could hear, or a hand I could touch, if only for a second in the dark. And here I am, 43-year-old American citizen, taxpayer, father of three, who has actually held his hand out into the darkness of doubt, longing for a hand that has never reached back. Nothing has come of it, I could be sure. No unquestionable sign, unless perhaps the sign of my own hand reaching out with a longing I cannot question. 
And finally, I say to him, driving home from church a few mornings ago, full of Christ and the creeds, I was giddy in the head almost. And if I wasn't speaking in tongues, I was at least singing in tongues in tongue, some kind of witless, wordless song. And as I was relishing that presence called Christ, I turned on the radio for the 12 o'clock news and heard how a four-year-old had died that morning somewhere. The child had kept his parents awake all night with his crying and carrying on, and the parents, to punish him, filled the tub with scalding water and put him in. These parents filled the scalding water with their child to punish him, and scalding and scalded, he died, I suppose, crying out in tongues, as I heard it reported on the radio. On my way back from all places, of all places, church, and I prayed to that presence called Jesus. I prayed to Almighty God to kick to pieces such a world, or maybe even to kick to pieces himself and his Son and his Holy Ghost, world without end, for standing there beside of that screaming tub and doing nothing while with his scrawny little buttocks bare, the hopeless little four-year-old whistled. The child was lowered in his mother's arms of all things. And I am acquainted with the reasons that theologians give and that I have given myself for why God does not, in the name of human freedom, must not, by the very nature of things he has himself established, that nature cannot and will not interfere in these sordid matters. And yet we continue to pray, calling his name, asking for interference. You're going to explain why you believe, the interlocutor says, not unkindly, softly now. I believe in Jesus, I suppose, without the miracles I have prayed for. That's what I'm trying to explain. I believe because certain uncertain things have happened, dim half-miracles, sermons and silences and whatnot, and perhaps it is my believing itself that is the miracle I believe by. Perhaps it is the miracle of my own life that I, who might so easily not have been, am, who might so easily at any moment, even now, give the whole damn thing up. Nonetheless, by God's grace, I do not give it up, and even more, I feel I am not given up by it. And as I trace the mosaic of that one named Jesus, I trace the outline of pieces of the puzzle, the calling of disciples, the healing of a widow's son, the touching of a man who had been untouched for years, the cleansing of a woman lost for 38 years in the unvirtue of uncleanliness. I see him beside the still waters. I see him beneath the sycamore tree telling Nicodemus of his great love. And as the pieces of the puzzle of Jesus fit together, there is at the center of that puzzle a piece missing. And as I trace the hollow space of that mosaic, the missing piece of that puzzle, as my fingers trace the contours of that missing piece, inside my heart turns anew, for the outline of that missing piece is the outline of my life if my life did not know Jesus. So, I remember a couple of years ago when we talked about a spectrum and the different ways that we can see Jesus. And I think all of that is well and good. But ultimately, we will sing our songs and we will break our bread and we will gather in this place and pray and we will minister to homeless people and we will teach our children and we will do our best in this place to remember that this is a house of prayer. This is a place where God can be experienced. And the experience of God is that thing that we call, we Christians call, the risen living presence of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? And until a better one comes along, I like this ship, don't you?
Jesus Christ as teacher, Jesus Christ as social revolutionary, Jesus Christ as Lamb of God. The church theologically has argued about these different iterations of Jesus until finally we are realizing these are not arguments that are held in tension. These are just different facets of the same beautiful diamond. I'm grateful that Jesus saved God for me. I'm perhaps equally grateful that in recent years, God has saved Jesus for me. And I remember the words of Tony Campolo. Uh, he has an incredible book called um, How to Follow Jesus Without Embarrassing God. And I think what's happening in the life of a lot of Christians is as we sort through that which is, is embarrassing to us about Christianity, it's not Christ that embarrasses us, us at all, is it, Michael? It's not Christ. It's all the silly things that are done in the name of Christ. I remember George Burns and John Denver. Remember that great movie, Oh God? John Denver was called by God, George Burns, to go and talk to a fellow who was preaching in a, a storefront church. And it was a charismatic, radical, fear-based preacher. And he was preaching the house of fire. And John Denver walked in, slipped in the back, not a religious person himself, but he slipped in and he finally raised his hand. And he said, um, sir, God has told me to tell you something. And the guy said, brother, stand up if you have a word from the Lord for us. And Denver stood up and said, God wanted me to tell you to shut up and sit down. You're embarrassing him. <laughs> and I suppose the good word tonight can be, may we follow God in the person of Jesus Christ without embarrassing him. God has shown forth his light in the glorious face of Jesus, and we are a privileged people to call him Lord. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads and close. For just a moment, we'll receive our offering if the ushers will ready themselves. But let us as Christ followers sit and complain for a moment. As we trace the mosaic of the life called Christ, as we find ourselves as the missing piece of that puzzle. Sweetest Christ, we pray that you will come to us in real living ways, in flesh, in the contours of relationships, in the faces of our loved ones, even in the faces of our foes. That Christ could be seen in the face of a child is no wonder that Christ could be seen in the face of my gravest enemy. This, the miracle that is Jesus. May we see you everywhere, living presence of God, and may we do our best to not embarrass you as those who call ourselves by your name. We pray all of this in Christ's grace. And God's people said, amen. amen.